Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Matthew Heisey joins us today. He is director of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. His new book is The Gates of Hell, an untold story of faith and perseverance in the early Soviet Union, our topic today. Welcome, Director Heisey. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's a strong story, a powerful story. Uh, some uh, Through all the darkness, several moments of inspiration and extraordinary courage on, on the part of several individuals. Let me ask, before we get into the details, did your interest in this subject arise because of your missionary work in that part of the world? Well, I guess I should say this first. My missionary experience also arose because of my family's background. My paternal grandparents, Friedrich and Matilda Heise, were born in Imperial Russia and emigrated to the United States uh, several years before the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, for which the family is eternally grateful, believe me. And so I've always had a fascination with Russia itself. In fact, I made my first trip to the Soviet Union in 1986, uh, just actually a few months after the Chernobyl accident. Let me interrupt you for a moment about, about, about because I, I, I didn't, I don't think you mentioned that in the book. I don't remember coming across that, but did you sense in 1986, I mean, the Chernobyl disaster, of course, uh, but did you sense that this regime may fall soon? I don't think I ever sensed that, but it was very clear changes were coming. Uh, actually, I was on a tour, and uh, the uh, guide for the tour was uh, a, uh, a fellow who, I'm trying to think of his last name now, uh, I can't remember, but he was actually uh, stationed in Moscow during Stalin's time uh, in the American embassy. Uh, so he was a retired colonel. And uh, it was a fascinating, just talking, to, fascinating talking to him and, and speaking to him about the past. Uh, he was very interested in the changes that were taking place. I did not know Russian at that time. I only knew German. Uh, so uh, he knew Russian and, and he would eagerly explore every morning the newspapers the Moscow news that we're talking about the changes taking place. Hmm. But I don't think any of us ever expected it to come so quickly. Yeah. What, what, to, to the book, what was the state of the Lutheran church in Russia before the 1917 revolution? It was actually an ethnic church. Uh, and that means Russians uh, until the 1905 uh, um, uprising in uh Russia, Imperial Russia, they were, Russians were not allowed to belong to any church but the state Orthodox Church. So that means uh, Roman Catholics, Baptists, Lutherans 
were mostly composed of ethnic groups. And so for the Lutheran Church, you're talking Germans, Estonians, Finns, Latvians, Swedes, and a surprising number of Armenians, actually, were part of that church. And it was a very powerful church that had been in the country since 20 years after Martin Luther's death. So you're talking mid-16th century. It had long roots, and my own family, of course, had long roots within that uh, country itself. Is this why, uh, as you note at the beginning, that uh, many Lutherans in Russia actually looked forward to the overthrow of the Tsar, uh, or at least maybe optimistic about some results of opening things up for them? That's a good point. They were openly persecuted. Um, in fact, uh, during World War I, preaching in German was forbidden. And uh, there was actually an infamous pogrom in 1915 in Moscow, where German businesses were destroyed. And uh, four or five Germans, I think, were, were actually killed. Germans, and by that I say Germans from Russia. So when the Bolshevik Revolution took place, uh, of course, the initial uh, attack was against the state Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church. And the other churches saw that perhaps, although they were persecuted, they might have a little breathing spell. And really, that's what the 1920s was for the Lutheran Church. They, but, but, but they did, you, you note, they did divide their understanding of the revolution relative to the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. They always worried about the Bolsheviks, correct? Of course, yeah. yeah. The Bolsheviks were, were very much committed to the destruction of the church. Mensheviks and those who were responsible for the February Revolution with Kerensky in power were, were actually quite open. So initially, for those several months between February and October 1917, uh, the church saw this as a, as a great opportunity for perhaps reversing some of the persecution from the Tsarist time. Hmm. What were some of the first things those, uh, uh, those wonderful Bolsheviks did when they took over the government later that year? Were the churches, including the Lutherans, a quick target? Well, there was a separation of church from state. So you did have Russian Orthodox schools you had had Lutheran schools for, for centuries, and of course, they were also actively involved. I mean, Lutheran churches and Orthodox, for that matter, and Catholic, were deeply involved in humanitarian work, homes for the indigent, for widows, for orphans. Uh, those were now taken over by the state. So schools, and if I'm thinking of Lutheran schools, which I, I did a little bit of research on, the Lutheran schools themselves could no longer teach from the Bible, but they could teach academic subjects. So one of the interesting things is when H.G. Wells, the famous British author, is, is making a trip in 1920 to the Soviet Union and, and trying to see what is happening there, he, he's actually impressed by this famous school, which is called, is called the Petershula, where uh, Mussorgsky, of course, had been a student uh, several other people of uh, of academic note uh, and uh, certainly artistic note had been a member of this Petershule. I think it's still in existence. In fact, I know it is today. I think it's school number 141, uh, public school number 141 in St. Petersburg. But this school could no longer teach religion, but they could still teach their subjects. And Wells 
just visited the school one day and he said he was really impressed with it because he saw that they were actually very strongly academically inclined, uh, even though they were no longer teaching religion. And he could see that it wasn't a Potemkin village, this attempt to create a facade and show, show him that the Soviet Union was advancing forward because uh, everybody kind of showed them the school and, and they didn't even know who H.G. Wells was. Hmm. So, so he was impressed because he says, they shouldn't know me. Other public schools would say I'm the most famous British author around. Uh, one of the first things that happened, you know, was the confiscation of parsonages. How did Lutheran leaders uh, initially react? Because this was an aggression the Tsar didn't, right. didn't do. Were they instantly, oh, no? This... No. Actually, they weren't. And, and, and that's interesting because... What happened, the way the Soviets did this, and, and I think we have to understand that they uh, are still looking at the West and the West's reaction to what is taking place in the Soviet Union. And so they want to portray a very positive front. So therefore, many of these pastors could still technically live in the parsonages, but of course, they were no longer their property. And what soon happened, for example, in uh, St. Peter and Paul in downtown Moscow, was they began dividing rooms up within the parsonage. You had the what they called the communalkas, where communal living. So the pastor has his room with his family, but now workers, members of the working class, are occupying other rooms there. Hmm. So initially, what they basically did is said, all the property is ours, but we'll let you use it. And so, for example, they created what they called the vatsatkas, which are 20s. It's is 20 in Russian. And this was the church council. It could consist of 20 individuals, but those people then would still have to answer to the state and, in a sense, manage the church with the understanding that it's not your property. It's the state's property now. I, I imagine that that was probably a clever uh, Leninist tactic in letting them, in actually letting them stay there, but moving all these other people in because... What is what is the the parson going to say? Hey, stop this! Well, oh, you, you you don't want to help the workers here? You don't think the the Russian people are good enough to be? <laughs> so, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Now, now, how much of this wasn't anti-religion or anti-Lutheran, but anti-German? That's that's really a good question. Uh, initially, I think it's more anti-religion. Uh, it will become anti-German, especially as uh, Germany becomes more powerful. Uh, there, there's an interesting question of language. Uh, many people in the church who are working in the Lutheran church are called pan-Germanists in the 20s and into the early 1930s. But when Hitler comes to power, they're called fascists. Huh. And, and that has a far more negative connotation. Pan-Germanist is, okay, maybe they have the interests of another country and not our own. And, and you're right, there is that. Uh, but first and foremost, I think, is really the attack on religion. That's one of the things that the Soviets saw was, was very stubborn and, and that they needed to really begin to actually educate the younger generation in atheism itself, materialistic atheism. And they begin doing this more in the late 1920s 
because they realize at first when they begin to do these, you know, you talk about parades, they had these anti-Christian parades on Christmas. Actually, the population was taken aback. They, they didn't really support that. So uh, the Soviet state said, okay, and following a very good Leninist tradition, take two steps forward, and when you meet resistance, take a step backwards. Yeah. And so they did that, uh, but with the understanding that ultimately they're going to keep moving forward. But uh, Anatoly Lunacharsky, who was the Commissar of Enlightenment uh, in the late 20s, realized that they now needed to actively promote atheism. I, I, I love that title, the Commissar of Enlightenment. <laughs> yes. I think it's, a, it's actually even a longer title than that. I can't remember all of it, in <laughs> but, but that's the gist Good. of it. Uh, now, as, as the persecution advances, were outside Lutheran organizations able to help? international or, 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 you know, American, did they, did they step up? Yes, my book really focuses in particular on one man. He's uh, Dr. John Moorhead, who was the former president of Roanoke College, which still exists today in Southern Virginia. And Dr. Moorhead had made trips over to Europe uh, at the end of World War I and saw the destruction and received an invitation to go into what was then, uh, the new communist state. And when he saw it, and he saw especially the turmoil, the civil war that was going on and how people were starving, he began to try and find a way to get humanitarian aid there. But he also began to talk to people in the church and he realized what they were up against. And so uh, Moorhead, uh, till the end of his life in 1936, and by the way, he was actually going to be actively promoted uh, for the Nobel Peace Prize by Herbert Hoover, who was a close friend, because uh, a lot of Americans have a mistaken notion of Hoover. Hoover was loved and revered in Europe for his efforts to help feed Europe after right. World War I, and certainly in the Soviet Union, too, through something called ARA, the American Relief Administration. And so Moorhead uh, set up his own National Lutheran Council, which worked through the American Relief Administration to help feed those people who were starving. Even when I lived in, in Russia in the 90s and the aughts, uh, I, I would still run into people who remembered ARA and, and still were thankful to Americans for helping feed Russia. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, apart from the, you know, the, the actual persecution, confiscation, did the Bolsheviks work up a propaganda apparatus to try to smear and discredit the Russian Lutheran Church at home and abroad? They had uh, an organization called the League of the Militant Godless. You, you can't make these, <laughs> these titles up. It was, it was true. And, uh, and so, of course, what they would like to do is portray... Uh, Lutheran pastors in particular as agents of the German state, and when Hitler came to power, uh, even more viciously as, as people who support were, were Nazis, in a sense. 
And uh, so they promoted this big lie. And, and of course, what happened is as, as people begin, when they're, when they're only getting one side of the story, uh, it begins to, begins to sink and maybe there's some truth to this. So uh, initially, some of the Lutheran pastors, before their arrests, really undertook this, this program of education. And you see it in the 20s and especially up to 1929, where they recognized if we don't teach the next generation from the scriptures, we'll be lost and they'll be lost. We, we have to do something. And that means we've got to obey God rather than men. And there, there was a debate within the church, because Lutherans are very, very much strict advocates of Romans 13. We look at the fact, uh, certainly we can see that in Nazi Germany, this, this understanding that, well, you know, the authorities are instituted, instituted by God, so therefore we cannot uh, go against them except when they ask us to obey man rather than God. Uh, but others were more bold, and I point to two pastors in particular, Helmut Hansen and Kurt Muss, who were classmates in, in, in Leningrad, they decided that they had to break the state law of teaching children uh, in apartments because they were no longer allowed to teach children uh, Sunday school in the church building proper. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about, about most, if I'm pronouncing that. You are, yes. Correctly. But, I, I mean, one, one thing I want to say to listeners is the book is very detailed. You, you, you go into episodes in depth and you talk about specific actions, sometimes day by day, week, week by week. So this is actually a great, I think, historical resource for people, you know, graduate students who might be studying uh, the history of religion in Russia in the 20th century. Uh, I mean, you go into things like actions taken by the Cheka uh, agents there in Russia against people like Mus. Who was Mus exactly, and what, what happened to him? What, what, what was his story? I would, I would call Kurt Mus, uh, I've always called him the Russian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, because just as Bonhoeffer was concerned about the younger generation and uh, where they were going in the future and their beliefs, uh, Mus understood that if he didn't educate these children in the faith, they would lose. Uh, atheism would, would, was in the vanguard already, and atheism would take over. And if he didn't plant what he called these temples of God within the hearts of people, uh, they would not remain in the faith. And, and so uh, it, there's actually an interesting story because uh, I have friends who knew the family, and uh, his nephew uh, was interviewed by a friend of mine. And uh, his nephew said, we were always afraid to. My mother told me, don't go to church. It only causes trouble uh, because he saw that his uncle was was executed, of course, for his faith. And Kurt was eventually executed. So, I mean, there was the, this this man had been trained in the Lutheran schools. But in the 1920s, John Moorhead became ill on one of his trips to the Volga. And so Kurt Muss took over the rest of that trip, distributing aid and sent a report back. And, and Muss was very, very blunt and straightforward. He said, this is not. A famine from natural causes. This is a man-made famine by the Soviet state, and and clearly, the mail pouch had been opened. It, it's it's pretty evident. I've st I'm still looking for his actual letter in the Elka archives in Chicago. I haven't found it, but uh, there was a letter, and uh, apparently, the state the Soviets found it, put it back in, and he was arrested. 
Uh, he served a couple of years, but he was released and, because it was the 1920s. There was still possibility to be released. Uh, Nikolai Morozov, a famous scientist, became a friend of his and, and helped get him back into Leningrad, where he became ordained as a pastor. And so all these events in 1929, this is kind of the bellwether year because Joseph Stalin passes a law, a decree called Concerning Religious Associations on April 8. And that basically bans teaching of Sunday school within churches, bans teaching young children. And so Hansen and Muss decide that they're going to divide their Sunday school teachers among all these apartments in Leningrad. And they will go on Sundays and teach three or four children each throughout the city. Uh, but just before Christmas, they were arrested. And uh, as Mus was arrested, uh, he had just been married about a couple of months before his arrest. He was imprisoned. He was never released and ultimately executed in 1937. So I was going to note, this was a long episode. This wasn't, he's just arrested and he disappears. No, this, this went on for years and he didn't, he didn't bend. Yeah, I, once again, I, the interesting thing is, along with getting access, for which I'm grateful to Russian friends, to KGB files, uh, what we would call the NKV day in that time, um, I was able to you know, get information from family members. And uh, they have this drawing of Kurt Mus that was made by a gulag inmate. And you can see he's been beaten, obviously, about the face. I put that in the book, actually. Yeah. And uh, he clearly had gone through some very difficult times, uh, but this this artist had said that he, he had remained very strong in his faith. They used to uh, put on plays in the gulag camps to kind of take the prisoner's mind off their num mind-numbing work, literally, and, uh, and Kurt Moss uh, used the occasion of one of those plays to begin giving a sermon, <laughs> and this is seen, of course, by people in the camp, and so he's actually re-arrested within the camp. Hmm. Uh, and and that leads to his execution in, later in 1937. Yeah. I mean, as, as this was going on in the 1920s, uh, it, you, you quote Bishop Meyer in 1926, worrying that the church just, just may be gone soon. I mean, one of the problems being, uh, as the, the pastors, if they're not taken away, uh, they they age and they retire. How do you replace them? How do you find pastors, young pastors? I mean, it, it, it's almost as if the the part of the strategy was simply to starve the church over over time. They simply will not. That they have no pipeline anymore. What were there any positive signs of endurance during these these years of the fateful year nineteen twenty nine, uh, as you say? Anything that might have given people some hope. I think the only hope was that, that the faith was firmly planted among many younger people. And, and I say this because in the 1990s, many of those people resurface in the church. And as the churches opened up in the 90s, I was actually in uh, volunteer missionary in 1994-95, taught English at Moscow State University. Uh, they were just looking for warm bodies who spoke English, basically. But... Um, uh, I had the opportunity to see that many of these people came back into the church, uh, interestingly enough, and they talked about the martyrs like Mus, like Hansen, uh, like Streck in Moscow, who had planted the faith for so long. Uh, so during the difficult years, 
they remained faithful although their churches were closed. Some, like Mikhail Mudyugin, who became a very famous figure, um, he was a protege of Kurt Muss. He basically became a linguistics professor. And uh, I actually saw this on the Kultura chan channel in St. Petersburg a few years ago. They did a special on him. He created a big scandal in 1958 because he left this prestigious post at a linguistics institute in Leningrad and became a lowly priest in the Orthodox Church, hmm. one church that was open. And in the 1990s, he uh, actually became an archbishop of that church and returned to the church of his martyred mentor, Kurt Muss, uh, wearing his Orthodox uh, robes, uh, the pastor, Lutheran pastor, Sergei Priman, who I knew, would invite him to come and speak to the congregation. One of the first books that we did at Lutheran Heritage Foundation was Collected Works of Luther. And we have uh, a foreword from Mudugan himself, where he talks about uh, the worth of knowing Luther and Luther's theology. So a lot of these people, uh, I guess the hope would be, you know, this is this is the Christian faith. On the surface, things look bad. Yeah. But deep down, we don't know how deeply that faith is planted in people's hearts. Uh, apart from the Orthodox Church, was Stalin's aim total eradication of, of all the other religions? And did he really believe that that was possible? Well, that was his goal, certainly. Um, Mus... Uh, has not most, yeah, most Kurt Moss has conversations with, with uh, other Catholic priests. No, I'm sorry, it was Mudugan. That's who I wanted to say. Uh, Michal Mudugan, in his time in prison, is speaking to Catholic priests, uh, some of Polish background who were arrested for their faith. Uh, Vladimir Marcinowski is a famous Protestant theologian who was expelled from the country. Uh, Stalin went after everyone. I think the 20s is first you have to break the state church, and they did this with Patriarch Tichon. Uh, but then they started, after 1929, it was going after all the other churches. It was their turn. And Stalin clearly, even in the during the time of his great terror in 1937 and 38, is quoted as saying, we have not yet annihilated the clergy, but we have to do that. Hmm. The, the irony of all this is fascinating because right at the 20th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1937, there was this survey that was taken, and it apparently indicated that 54% of those interviewed said they still believed in God. Now, you can imagine in the Soviet state at that time, the number was probably higher. These were people who yeah, publicly yeah, yeah. acknowledged that. And, and in fact, it got to the point that they would no longer put this, this question out there because they realized that all these years of the League of Militant Godless, atheist propaganda, uh, people still believed, yet they, 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 they had to work this over time. And in the succeeding years, I think they began to make more inroads against the churches, the faith that had been inculcated. In, in the 30s, starting in 1930, you, you say you had several Lutherans actually put on trial uh, with charges brought against them. Did, did any of them get off? Were any of them let go? Um, no, uh, I should, I, let me clarify that actually. Um, pastors were not let off. Parishioners were, especially younger ones. These Sunday school teachers in the fabled Muss Hansen case were for the most part released if they were too young, like Mikhail Mudugan and his future wife, Dagmar Schreiber, 
or they had been actually put to work in the laboring in the White Sea Canal. If you read Ann Applebaum's Gulag book, it's, it was some of the worst work to possibly do. And so mm. young, younger people, they survived that, but always had the fear of the Soviet state. So uh, younger people, for the most part, were let off or given sentences and released. Pastors were not. Yeah. What was the Kirov, we're jumping ahead, what was the Kirov terror? Sergei Kirov was a, the head of the Communist Party in Leningrad, and in 1934, uh, December 1934, he was assassinated uh, by what appears to have been a disgruntled worker who felt that he was not getting a promotion. There are all sorts of theories uh, as to what happened there. Matthew Lenawa has written a, a great book on this and has delved deeply, and I think uh, the conclusion is basically that Stalin didn't hire this guy as, as a hired gun. He probably was this disgruntled worker. However, what Stalin did was use it against his enemies. And that, I think, no one doubts. So with Kirov's assassination, uh, there's always some fear that Stalin feared him, uh, potentially becoming a, uh, a future successor because he was very popular in Leningrad. Uh, but what happened with his murder, Stalin used it to accuse his enemies, those who had been some of the early Bolsheviks, uh, like Kamenev and uh, Zinoviev. And so he had these fabled trials in 1936 where these old communists uh, were, of course, uh, accused, uh, convicted, and executed. Um, and that with Kirov, the Kirov terror, as they called it, was also used against uh, a term called the Buivsheludi. They're the former people. They're people who maybe had a position in the Tsarist Empire or were at least wealthy merchants. Ironically, some of these German Lutherans who were persecuted by the state, but uh, of course were wealthy merchants back in those times, they were then uh, arrested and accused of being part of this huge plot to, to kill Kirov. Uh, last question. Late, late in the book, even after all that's happened, uh, and at the height here, 1937, Easter, you note more than 81,000 people attended Orthodox services. Did they go, and, and many of them, you say, disappeared. Uh, did, they, did they go knowing that this was dangerous and doggone it, I'm going anyway? I think they had to. I think they, they had to have known. Um, I, I'm, I'm, since I, this was part of my dissertation, I don't, can't remember exactly everything that's in the book. Some yeah. things may have been left out, but one I remember is a member of the church whose, actually, whose grandson was a guitarist for Dire Straits, the rock group. Uh, hmm. uh, her son became a famous uh, uh, intelligence official for the United States, uh, but... Uh, this woman was there with her son in church in St. Peter's, and, and they noted that, oh, there's Emma, she's here. Where's her husband? Uh-oh, he's not here. And they begin to notice who's disappearing, who's not disappearing. So huh. the people in the church, they know. They know what's happening. They, they see it. Um, but, of course, some of them still feel compelled to go. Others, as I said, with with the... Uh, uh, Kurt Moose's nephews, his mother told him, don't go to church. It only causes trouble. So you have a little bit of all that. But the remarkable thing, I think, is the the 
perseverance of many of these saints who, knowing what's going on, cannot do any other but attend and, and be faithful Christians. The book is The Gates of Hell, an untold story of faith and perseverance in the early Soviet Union. Matthew Heisey, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-332. 2930.